Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 428. It is April 30th, 2010. We've killed off another month. Hopefully we've made it productive both on the air and in our individual lives. Today we're going to talk about coming U.S. economic collapse. Remember, I'm the one that says there's going to be a false recovery. Better than it looks right now. And then on the other side of that, we're going to have the biggest crash that we've ever seen. Today we're going to take a unique view at what that might look like. I say unique because the first thing we're going to do today once we get done with the housekeeping that we'll do in just a second, is we're going to hear from somebody that disagrees with me, uh, that's pretty well informed and pretty damn smart, and is is basically saying the false recovery ain't going to happen. That's what I get out of it anyway. He's saying these the, the next dominoes are coming very, very soon. And he and I have a lot of similarities in some of the things that we've looked at and, and our beliefs and where the underlying problem is. And we'll learn something interesting from him. I'll leave it at that for now. It's about a nine-minute uh, talk on YouTube. I'm going to play the whole thing from him. Uh, so he's going to get, you know, 20% or 15% of the show today to speak, even though he's not actually here as a guest. But I think you'll really learn from him. I think you'll like the guy. The next thing we're going to do, though, is we're going to hear from me uh, in the past. In fact, we're going to hear from me from July 23rd, 2008, almost two years ago, let's say... 21 months ago, 20 months ago, something like that. And you're going to hear, sometimes I tell you guys, hey, I told you the mess was coming. And it's easy to say that. It's another thing to be able to go back and look at it. But what we're going to, the reason we're going to do that isn't for my ego. It's so that we can dovetail what I said then with what this gentleman is saying today. We'll examine that and then we'll go into, well, if it all comes to fruition, what exactly would it look like? Before that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors today with our housekeeping uh, segment. Sponsor of the day number one today is ShelfReliance.com. Not self, but Shelf Reliance. Why? Because they specialize in storage and other prepping needs. Uh, I have their Harvest 72 shelf. I did a review of it on YouTube. You may want to check that out on my YouTube channel. It's phenomenal. Uh, when you first look at this product online in a picture, you don't appreciate how much storage it really offers. You look at it and you see these spaces, and you don't realize that each item is double stacked. Uh, vertically, and it is amazing how much stuff you can really fit in that shelf. The one that I have up in Arkansas, I took it up there and assembled it so I didn't have to bring it up there later uh, when we finally moved this year. Uh, I'm going to go back up there uh, probably next month, and what I'm going to do, it's not even half full. I'm going to take everything out of it and sit it on the floor to give you an idea how much stuff is in there, because I don't think you really get it. The organization is amazing, and the, the, the quality is amazing. It's a great, great product. And remember, if you're in the MSB, you get 7% off, 7% off everything that they sell, and sometimes they throw out extra deals for the MSB as well. Next up today is Backyard Food Production. Uh, Marjorie Down, let's just say South of Austin, to keep her location uh, secure has an amazing homestead down there. And they have a DVD that shows you how they do everything that they do, all the things that they put together, the way they made all of this stuff work, how they actually feed themselves off their land so that you can do it too, whether you do it on a large scale or take pieces and parts of what they do and break it down for your own use. It is probably the best DVD that I've seen on 
homesteading, not so much because how inclusive it is, but how many things that you'll find from them that you won't find somewhere else. There's a bonus uh, CD that comes with it with a tremendous amount of documents on it that's probably worth the price of the DVD alone. So check out Backyard Food Production. Remember that uh, you can connect with the Survival Podcast online in a variety of ways through our forum, uh, through Twitter, through uh, Facebook, through YouTube. And guess what? Now on our forum, we have a chat room. I don't know if Sis Wolf pushed it, pushed it live for everybody yet or not. Last night I was talking to her and a bunch of the other moderators on it while we were testing it out. I think that's happened. If it has, I'll put a link today. But if it's not live already, know this. By next week, when you go onto our forum, you'll be able to have live chats. And I'm going to do something else cool with the chat room. Not sure what day and time yet, but I'm going to set a standard day and a standard time for chat with Jack, where I will be in the chat room guaranteed uh, to hang out and to get suggestions and feedback and everything else like that. So it should be a lot of fun. So we are moving the show along and we keep adding to what we're able to provide to the audience. I'm even thinking about having a certain time during the day where I'm doing the show and I'll just tell you I'm going to start recording at and I'm going to end at X and I'll be taking questions live through the chat with that. So that'll be kind of cool as well. So with that, we uh, have the uh, housekeeping wrapped up, except for mentioning the Member Support Brigade. I'm going to make it real simple today for you on Member Support Brigade. Great deal, great way to support the show. And recently I did a, um, a guest appearance on Christy Sijukowski's show, Truth Brigade. I did that Wednesday. I made a special deal for her listeners. I'm going to extend that deal to you guys through the weekend, and I'm going to tell you what the code is so you don't listen, have to listen to the whole show if you don't want to. The code is TRUTH. T-R-U-T-H, because our show is Truth Brigade. It's in all lowercase letters. It's a really good deal. You can go like you're going to sign up and see what a good deal is. I'll tell you what it is. It's 20 bucks off the first year. So it's your first year for $30 of the MSB running through until Monday, uh, actually Sunday night. Uh, when it flips over to Monday, that code will expire. So if you want to join the MSB for 30 bucks for your first year, and of course renewals at 50 um, you'll get that for uh, using the, the code TRUTH. And you'll get all the cool stuff. There's no, uh, nothing's taken out. You get everything, including the discounts, the videos, and all that jazz. And with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. So as I was thinking about what to do yesterday for today's show, I decided it was time to really talk about, I keep talking about this false recovery. And then I talk about the crash. Well, there's one thing that's consistent with what I'm saying and with what a lot of the other, uh, let's say, alternative experts say. People like Peter Schiff, people like Gerald Salente, and that's the crash. So we might disagree about how long it's going to take and what the interim will look like, but we all seem to agree that it's going to go down the other side. So since we have that commonality, they must, as far as I'm concerned anyway, know what they're talking about. So could I be wrong? Could the crash be more imminent, the second crash be more imminent uh, than I believe? Uh, Could we see it in 2011? Could we see it at the end of 2010? Are there things out there that could trigger the second landslide? Uh, the gentleman I'm about to let you hear from, uh, to me anyway, I, I feel like he believes that. He's not putting any hard timelines in place. This guy's very, very smart. I'm going to come back at the end of you hearing him for about nine minutes again, and I'm going to tell you why I think he's not exactly right on one point. But I'm going to tell you that I'm not calling this guy a clown or anything. This, this guy's spot on. And this, uh, as I was trying to put this show together, 
and try to figure out how can I give an opposing view. This morning, I, I come downstairs and look in my email box, and some, vis, uh, some uh, listener had sent me this video. So thanks to you who sent this in, and we're going to now go ahead and hear from a gentleman by the name of Max Gazer, uh, who's in the video, you won't be able to see to hear the audio, but he's sitting in front of a very nice yacht out in uh, uh, the Bahamas or Bermuda. It's in Bermuda, I think. And uh, he'll tell you uh, some things that he calls a wonderful fiction. Why the recovery isn't really a recovery, and we completely agree on that. He'll tell you why he thinks there's big underlying problems, which we'll also agree on. So anyway, not to st uh, steal the guy's thunder, let's hear from uh, Mike Gazer. All kidding aside... This month's commentary is probably one of the most serious that I've ever even tried to attempt in the limited format I have here. Four things I need to talk to you about. Don't get tense. I want to talk to you about the accounting rule that required institutions to mark their assets to market. That's FAS 157, but stay cool. The second thing I want to talk about is under political pressure, how FASB, the Financial Accounting Standards Board, was forced to relax that accounting rule. Number three, I want to talk about how that enabled all the big banks and a bunch of other institutions to begin to lie. No polite way to say it. That's what they're doing. They're lying about the value of their assets, which makes them look solvent, which makes them look profitable. I am in the process of writing a very serious editorial letter to the editor regarding this, which I hope one of the major newspapers that, that likes topics like this will publish. And number four, the silent conspiracy by the Treasury Department, by the Federal Reserve, and by the industry itself to not talk about this. FAS 157. This was the accounting rule that required institutions to mark their investments to market. It requires them to categorize securities three ways, and that dictates how the market value is arrived at. The one I want to talk to you about is Category 3. Under FAS 157, if you hold for which there is no readily available market value, you are required to calculate mathematically what the value is. That's fine. When the rule was passed, FAS 157, auditors took it quite seriously, as they should. There is no more realistic value for something than what somebody's willing to pay you for it. When all this financial storm began to hit, under political pressure, my, my number two point, Politicians leaned on FASB, the Financial Accounting Standards Board, who writes these rules, to lay off, to allow the institutions more flexibility in how they value these Category 3 assets, and just so to improve your language skills. These assets are no longer toxic. They're legacy assets. Then that's some nice legacy assets. Anyway, I already said it to you. What institutions are doing very bald-facedly is lying about these inflating, these market values. And the auditors have gotten the message that they're to leave them alone and lay off. Wasn't it amazing when all these big U.S. institutions were like all insolvent and in big trouble? And then literally overnight, they're all good. They're all liquid. They're all profitable. They're all solvent. It's baloney. And you know damn well the, the, what I really wanted to say there. It's crap. I want to say something worse than that, but I'm not. It really is troubling to me. This editorial that I'm writing is going to be simply titled A Wonderful Fiction for that reason. It's wonderful to think that, that these banks and all these other institutions are, the crisis is over. But the banks and their management and the other institutions know what I know. 
that a lot of these assets, these legacy assets that they're lying about the value of, are ultimately going to be worthless or damn close or worth very little. If they were to write them down to the actual market value, they would all be insolvent once again. And don't believe the stuff you hear about there is no market for these products. That is not true. I have hedge fund friend managers all over the world that would be willing to buy these assets at the appropriate price. Seven cents, ten cents, fifteen cents on a dollar. But you know what? The banks can't sell them because they might be able to like push the auditors around and have to, uh, you know, make them, the auditors accept these like fake values, but I'm as soon as they sell any of it and we have a real market value established by an actual transaction, guess what? I'm going to make you write down all the other assets to that value and you know what then? You're insolvent. So there's this big conspiracy between big Wall Street firms, between these banks and other institutions to just pretend that there's no market value so we can just make these prices up. But the banks know sooner or later the maturity day is going to come or some day is going to come and it's going to be obvious they're not worth a damn. And you know what, you know what they're doing? And now I bring in my, my, my number three and four points. The political pressure was the number three point that uh, you know, forced uh, the accounting profession to effectively accept these lies. But Treasury, the Federal Reserve... You know what? There's a damn good reason that the Federal Reserve has dropped rates to zero. Because you know what's happening? Banks are borrowing money from the Fed at effectively zero, and they're buying 10-year treasuries. And they're making 3.5%, give or take. And they're saving up their nickels and dimes, and they're trying desperately to build their cash position so when the day comes, when they finally have to recognize the obvious fact that these assets are worthless, that they'll have like a couple of nickels to rub together. So they're just... You remember the term zombie banks in reference to like the Japanese banks? Well, that's exactly what we got now. The politicians wring their hands about these banks took all this government money. Why aren't they lending? They need to jumpstart the economy. They can't lend. They can't. And the reason's simple. They already have a boatload of crappy, illiquid assets. If you don't know it, commercial loans usually have a fairly decent lifespan, five, seven, ten years. They can't tie their money up like that, man. They're already not liquid already. So, they're borrowing short, investing long. It's a very incestuous little arrangement. You notice that the United States is printing all this money and the government's issuing all this debt, and you hear on TV, uh, we're going to have a real inflation problem. Where is it? You know why we don't have any inflation problem? None of that money's making its way into the economy. The Federal Reserve and the Treasury print the money and, and, and issue the debt. They lend the money then to the banks. The banks then buy the treasuries. None of that money is making itself into the economy. So there's no inflation. Quite frankly, I actually think the big risk in our economy still remains deflation. So what is my point? My point is this. My friends, I, I say that very facetiously, I hope you know that. You know, Secretary Geithner, Larry Summers, Benjamin Bernanke, the chairman of the Fed. These are all smart guys, and they know what I'm saying is true. And they're all sitting there with their fingers crossed, hoping the whole industry can limp along, making a nickel and a dime here and there, and that the, the economy doesn't take another punch in the face. But I'm, I'm telling you something. You remember Mike Gazer told you it. If all of a sudden this whole commercial real estate thing starts to unravel, if we get another wave of foreclosures, which, by the way, Mike Gazer is telling you right now you're going to. That's weird, huh? I never talk in a third person like that. But in 2009, this year... Only $17 billion of these Alt-A residential mortgages reset their rates.
but in the years 2010 and 2011, 67 billion those two years. Four times what happened this year. And I'll tell you one thing, when those Altay mortgages reset their rates, that spells doom for those homeowners. Because when that rate resets, they're never going to be able to afford that mortgage payment in most probability. Never mind a 10% unemployment rate. A whole other reason people are going to be continuing to fall into foreclosure. And I hate it. I'm on this radio program out of London, which I hope some of you listen to, the Naked Short Club. And the nickname I've acquired there is the Prince of Darkness. That's how they throw it to me. So, what does the Prince of Darkness have to say about this? What's scary about what I'm saying to you as you listen to me is you know I'm right. I'm backing up my, my, my forecast, if you will, my expectation with fact. I'm sorry to be a bummer. Okay, and what I want to do to like totally give credit to this guy so that you really appreciate his insight, the date that this video was posted, October 2nd, 2009. So we're looking at eight, nine months ago, something like that. So this is... Uh, it was seven months ago, something like that. So this is a, a fairly good forward-looking statement at what's going on. There's a lot of things that this guy's talking about at this current time in his in his life that we've now seen come to fruition. There's a couple interesting things in there. One that I hadn't realized had happened. I hadn't realized. I knew there was a lot of shenanigans going on with FAS 157. In fact or FAS-157, as this gentleman calls it. I always say FAS because it makes it easier for you to look it up if you want to, because you know it's FAS, not FAZ. Anyway, I knew there were shenanigans. You're about to hear from me from in the past. And you'll hear about shenanigans going on way before this guy's telling you about them. You'll hear about shenanigans going on before the crash even happened, even after this, this standard was put in place. Uh, an unbelievable amount of shenanigans. But I hadn't realized how much more this had been pulled back. In other words, how much the auditors had been manipulated and how much of the banks themselves, this false recovery that we're in now and that I think is going to get bigger before it gets worse again, was based on backing off the FAS 157 standard. Again, just so you're clear on the standard, all it's saying is if I'm holding accounts in a bank and I say they're worth $20 million dollars, FAS 157 says the only way that I can say they're worth $20 million is if somebody out there would pay me $20 million to buy them. There has to be a market for it. What you just heard from, from Mike is, is absolutely right, and that is that there is a market, but the banks won't sell. And it's a very interesting thing that he pointed out. And this is where I think he's right, and it could be the trigger that eventually sends us down the second spiral. Sooner or later, these assets will reach maturity. And they're going to have two choices, eat it or try to sell it. Once they start selling these assets, there's a point at which you can't, these are contracts. They have time, they have, they're a temporal asset. Right? They're time-based. There's a point at which you just can't hold on to them and keep saying they're worth money anymore. And what, what Mike's saying, and I think he's right, is the first time that they start to sell these assets to these hedge fund managers who are willing to pay a market rate for them, that's going to establish the market. So the excuse of there isn't a market will go away, and we'll have to mark that down. I'll let that go for now, though, because you're going to hear me say everything you need to hear about this almost two years ago in just a second. The second part, though, and I think this is the part that we need to have a better understanding of, and this is where I think Mike Gazer is wrong. What he's telling you is the Alt-A loan resets are going to be a huge catastrophe. Before we hear me talk about FAS-157 from the past, let me tell you why I don't agree with that. 
I got an article here to support this. It's on the Money Game Business Insider website. And it's called, uh, The Coming Alt-Day Mortgage Reset Bomb is a Myth. Let me read you just one little part out of this article, because this will make my case for me perfectly. And it was what I believed, and this article just confirms it. Alt-Day loans are also known as a hybrid arm, so that makes sense to you. So let me read here from the article. Hybrid arms have an initial fixed period of 3, 5, 7, or 10 years. After the fixed period, they would reset adjusting every 6 to 12 months for the rest of the term and use the 6 to 12 month lipper or one year treasury with margins of 2.25 to 2.75%. What does that mean? That means that you had a loan and had a certain interest rate on it. And once your lock expires on the Alt-A loan, and it resets. It doesn't just reset up. They don't just automatically go up. They take the existing prime interest rate, and then they add 2.25 to 2.75 to that rate. What does that mean? Well, again from the article. So reading again here from the article, um, here's some four specific misunderstandings about Alt-A loans. Some specific misunderstanding caused confusion about possible reset waves. One, differing fixed terms mean hybrid arms reset over a 15-plus year span in a less concentrated manner than projected. In other words, these things are all spread out. They're not as grouped together as, as we would like to believe, I guess, uh, for folks like Mike. Hybrid arm resets currently often go down and not up, and that's the big one. That's the one that all these people that talk about the option uh, arm resets, the, the Alt-A mortgage resets, don't seem to understand. The way the Alt-A mortgages are done is not generally with the negative amortization. In other words, the debt's not usually growing with an Alt-A loan the way that it is with a typical consumer arm because they're considered a little bit more risky, right? They're an A-minus credit, basically. So they don't generally allow them to go into big negative amortization. So even during the period with the low interest rate, the person holding the mortgage is actually paying off some principal. Not always, but sometimes and most times. So when the mortgage resets or recasts, it doesn't just go up. It, it changes the rate. And because the interest rates have been pushed so far down, and because some of these loans that are maturing are now seven years old in that seven-year cycle, they were originally based on interest rates from seven years ago, which were actually a lot higher than the interest rates today. So this big uh, reset wave of Alt-A's in 2010 is for most of these people pushing their payments on their loans down, assuming they haven't already defaulted because they don't have any money anyway. So the people that are still paying on the loans are actually seeing their loans go down. And anybody right now that's been able to make it through this wave and make good on their mortgage and make their payments and are not behind is having relatively little trouble refinancing. That's point three here. And then the next one is the lenders are not stupid. So point four in this article says where resets would increase rates, since the lenders don't want the accounts to go into default, what they're doing right now is they're just extending or modifying them. So what they're saying is, yeah, we could jack your interest rate up in the rare cases where it could happen, but we just want you to keep paying, and you've been paying for seven years, so we know you can pay, so we'll just extend your contract another two years, another three years, what have you. 
because the loans in general that are still in place today are profitable. So I don't see the big Alt-A reset bomb that Mike, uh, Mike sees. So uh, Mike Gazer, I think, is the way he said his name. All right. So I don't see that. But the FAS-157 stuff is dangerous, and long-term, and when I say long-term now, we're into two, three years, the, the, these these assets, these as they call them, legacy assets instead of toxic assets today, the banks have marked back up, I see as a real problem. Now, let's listen. I keep telling you guys, I told you back way back when that, you know, that, that this stuff was going to happen and it was dangerous and, and you need to get your money out, and, and I pointed out all these indicators. So let's hear, you guys that are new to the show, you're really going to appreciate the audio quality when you hear this. This show is so old, I didn't even put episode numbers in the title, so I don't even know what episode number it was, but again, this show is uh, it's about a six-minute piece of this show from July 23rd, 2008, and when you're done, when, when you listen to it, think about how many things have happened between July uh, 2008 and today, and how spot-on this was. So here we go, blast from the past, Jack Spirico from the car with the bad audio. these six dominoes, these things that I believe could have a hugely negative impact on our economy going forward, and the thing about them is most of them have no hypotheticalness whatsoever. These are all things that are going to hit us. Um, it, whether I'm right or wrong, it's going to be about how hard. So this first domino is what I learned about in this report. It's called FAS-157, and it's a fair accounting standards ruling. And basically what this says, and I'm going to try to make this as simplistic as possible so that people really understand what's been going on. Up until November of 2007, financial institutions, insurance corporations, etc., would take these assets they have called level three assets, where there are things that no one really talks about, the things like insurance on debt, insurance policies against debt, there are things like, oh, all those nasty little subprime loans that are held collectively in these little groups, these little pockets. And they would say to their accountants, hey, you know what, just use a computer model put a value on these things because we can't really get a market price because there's not really a market for them. No one's standing in line to buy subprime loans right now. No one's really looking to buy insurance that we already own against a debt that's already looks bad. Um, you know, it just, it, we, we can't really get a market price on a lot of these assets. So... The geniuses in our government decided that was bad, and they're right. That was bad as far as I'm concerned. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big proponent of FAS-157. I just think that we've made a real mess because we let these guys do it the other way for a long time. So a lot of these losses that you're seeing from these banks aren't you know, necessarily direct default, like the guy's not paying his mortgage losses or um, direct cash losses. What they are is these banks have had to start reporting the things that they own, that they say are worth money, what they're really worth instead of what they think they're worth. In other words, they can't just decide that this one account is worth $200,000 when they can't sell it but for $40,000. That do is called mark-to-market uh, instead of mark-to-imagination, which is what they've been doing up until now. Now, so what we're seeing, and we're gonna, I think we're going to see more and more of the bottom drop out of this financial sector, um, a lot of people would say that FAS 57 has shown us the bottom because they've already had to use it in their reportings. You know, Bank of America had to use it in their earnings report we've been waiting for to come out today. They came out with a dividend of $0.72 cents a share profit. Uh, remember, I did a little bit on them, so everything looks good for Bank of America technically right now, and you're seeing the share price go up. 
Now, the problem that I have with all this is, one, I don't think we're done seeing the correction that comes from it yet. We're going to continue to see more and more devaluation of assets. For your you know, review, I submit that Freddie Mac still made out using this thing after FAS 157 uh, was uh, put in place. They took, you know, a loss that should have been like 21 billion, I'm not sure of the exact figure, but billions and billions of dollars, down to about 500 million, two months ago before this big drop in their, in their stock price. And the way they did it is they took a great deal of their assets that had normally been level one or level two assets, in fact, just about everything they owned, and they put it into level three so that they could put a different value on it. And they, they sheltered tens of billions of dollars, even under the new accounting practice of FAS 157. So while FAS 157 made everybody look like they lost more, things were so shady over at Freddie Mac uh, that it made it look like they did better even though they were bad. What this tells me is that we're only scratching the surface with this new accounting requirement. And it might sound kind of boring, but basically what I'm telling you is that the banks on their balance sheets have their asset values overrated, inflated, higher than they really are. They're saying, we own this much security to back our debt. And the amount of security they own isn't even close to what they're saying it is. And this is just one step in starting to uncover that. So my belief is the first domino isn't just FAS 157. It's as we start to get smarter as a country and demand more and more accountability from these people, from these lending institutions, from these insurance companies, and we start to realize how shady the accounting really is, we're going to make our government, and sometimes we do actually get our government to do things, and they'll be happy to do this because even though it's their fault they let it go on, they're going to be able to blame somebody else and say they did it, the, the, the evil executives did it, not us. So we're going to continue to dig into this, and we're going to see something that, that I think has been coming for a long time. We're going to start to find out what our banks really have in hard assets, how much money they really have versus how much debt they really have, and I think that's a really nasty, dark hole that we're going to go down into. And when we get down in there, I don't know how bad it's going to be, but I know it's not going to be good for our economy, specifically short term. So there you go, folks. How'd I do? Um, did I call it spot on? Do we not see the executives getting all the blame? Now, remember when that was from. That was from July 23, 2008. We didn't have executives in front of Congress yet being grilled and being blamed for everything. Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae had already gotten really bad, but they hadn't completely collapsed yet. The stock market was still up over, uh, I think it was well up over 12,000 points at the time. This was a time when things were still pretty good that I was telling you this. Uh, again, it's not to toot my own horn, it's to, to tie in together with what's going on here. And uh, from what we learned from Mike Gazer about what's happened to FAS 157 since I originally told you about it, and that is that, one, yes, it was part of dismantling the lie. And when it dismantled the lie, it made all the banks evidently insolvent. It showed us how bad things were almost overnight. This precipitated a massive crisis that led to huge bailouts, Billions and billions and billions of dollars, 800 billion just in the first wave pumped into the banks. Artificially low interest rates, the Fed dropped the interest rates as low as they possibly could. And then what happened? Overnight, it looked like the bailouts helped anyway. It was better.
All of a sudden, these banks are solvent. All of a sudden, they're repaying loans. Remember, we just talked yesterday about all the shell game bullshit that people play to make it look like they're repaying loans when they're using our own money. But what I learned from Mike Gazer that, that, is, that is absolutely phenomenal to me and tells me actually that I might be right about this false recovery or I could be wrong. Again, I reserve the right to be wrong. Is that what the banks are doing right now is in cahoots with the feds like I never realized. The current interest rate on a U.S. Treasury, a long U.S. Treasury is... Well, it's right around in the 4 percentile, 4.2, 4.3, depending on when you bought it, how long you're holding it. There's, there's treasuries up to 10 years, and there's greater than 10, and there's a little bit of an interest rate bump. These guys are probably doing what he's saying, though. They're holding long at 10 years. Coincidentally, that's how long the, the stagnation in Japan lasted, about 10 years, until those treasuries came to uh, maturity. Now, there's also another interest rate that we don't talk about a lot. It's called the federal discount rate. What's the federal discount rate? That's if you're an eligible financial institution, in other words, a big enough bank, where you can borrow money directly from the Federal Reserve, that rate is 0.75% right now, 0.75, three-quarters of 1%. doesn't take a genius to figure out if you borrow at three-quarters of a percent and you invest at about 4.5%, you can make about 3%, nickels and dimes, like this guy was talking about, right? There's also another thing called the federal funds rate. The federal funds rate is the rate at which banks loan money to each other. That's a quarter of a percent right now. So that means that even if you're not an eligible financial institution, if you are a bank that's big enough to borrow from another bank that borrows directly, your interest rate's about 1%. That still leaves you the ability to invest at 35 4.5%. That's not why people buy stock in banks, to make 3 or 4%, right? But that's what the banks are doing right now. So what the banks do, get, you got to get the picture. This guy is, is a genius. I wish I would have stumbled onto him a year ago. It would have helped me formulate things a lot better over the last year. What the banks do, go to Federal Reserve. Say, Federal Reserve, I'd like some money, please. The Federal Reserve sells some treasuries at an interest rate of 4.5% and gives out money at an interest rate of three-quarters of a percent to the bank. The bank hops its happy little ass right to the back of the line over where the Federal Reserve sells the treasuries invests the capital into U.S. treasuries and buys them and holds them long and makes the spread on the interest rates. That's why the money's not flowing. That's why even though the debt has gone through the ceiling, the money supply has gone through the ceiling, you haven't seen the inflation because the banks are sitting on the money. And what he's saying is we can't just yell at the banks for sitting on the money. They can't spend it because as the toxic assets come to fruition, as we eventually see how these legacy assets really aren't legacy, they're worthless, these banks are going to need money to remain solvent. And if they don't have it, they won't survive the crossover. In fact, if you look at it that way, the difference between life and death might be a quarter of a percent. And God, does this dovetail into what we talked about yesterday, folks. Remember what I said yesterday about the new financial uh, bill, the, fi the Dodd bill that it was set up with terminology in it called a funeral plan. A organization large enough to cause damage to the nation by collapsing needs to have a plan to go out of business. Now, if the big banks play in this game can make a quarter percent more than the little banks play in this game, and if the little banks are in hock to the big banks for the interbank loan, as these things begin to collapse, who goes down first? Giant 
Chase, that's part of the Federal Reserve anyway, it has people on the inside, people on the board are part of Chase, or the little bank that borrowed from Chase. Of course, the little bank goes down first. Who's holding, let's call it a lien, against the little bank? Chase. So what can Chase do? Step in and suck up, actually, everything that's worth money in the little bank and not touch anything that's not worth less. And all of a sudden, we save all the big banks by setting up a position that allows them to swallow the little banks one by one as the dominoes fall. And if you don't think that's what this federal regulation is really about, I didn't know this yesterday. I just put these puzzle pieces together today. This guy, this guy that said this thing almost a year ago, was the final piece that I needed to connect the dots and understand what's really going on here. I knew it when I looked at it. I knew it when I read that bill. This is a, a, a not a government takeover of the financial industry, but allowing the financial industry to consolidate itself at this, to save the biggest, largest financial corporations and give them bailouts with their own money, so to speak. It's actually our money because it comes from the Fed, and of course the Fed borrows it to loan it, therefore it's our debt, so it's our money, right? That's what's going on here. It's unbelievable when you really put it all together. Let me, let me one last time connect the dots for you so you get this and you understand it fully. Before your congressional clowns right now is pending legislation that's supposed to solve the problems in the financial industry. It sets the Federal Reserve and the United States Treasury as the watchdogs to oversee this supposedly as independents. So they're not in cahoots with anybody. They're independent watchdogs. Of course, they're in cahoots with each other, and they're in cahoots with the banks right now. That's what this sets up. It sets up provisions that allow for large financial institutions, which any bank would be a large financial institution, folks. Two or three branches, you're, a, you're, you're talking millions and billions of dollars, large, right? To have a plan to be quickly pushed into bankruptcy and to be absorbed as quickly as possible and to dis dislodge toxic aspects as quickly as possible. We have that legislation in place. At the same time, the largest banks in the United States and across the world right now are borrowing money from our Federal Reserve at three-quarters of a point and using the money they're borrowing to purchase the Treasury notes, which, by the way, create the money for them in the first place, for a, for a profit by buying in at four, four and a half percent. And making the spread. These large banks then take surplus cash that they're going to make a quarter point bump on and do interbank loads to the smaller institutions that are rife with these toxic assets as well. That means that the little banks go in a hawk to the big banks. Okay? And at a slightly less ability to leverage the long-term play with the U.S. Treasury. The Treasury keeps money coming into the other side and says, look, People are still buying our treasuries. It's not as bad as you think it is. Look, maybe we're selling a little bit less, but we're selling a lot of it. But they're robbing Peter to pay Paul. They're borrowing the money and just sticking it in the other side. At the whole time, there's this interest, delta, right, of, of about 3.5%. Who's paying for that? Me and you, because it goes on to our debt as a nation. The bank gets the 3% for... Re Isn't that a sweet deal? Wouldn't you love a deal like that? You can have as much money as you want, and when the, when the bank is audited, 
and said, do you have the money to pay back the loan to the Federal Reserve? Of course they do, because they present as a hard asset United States Treasuries. And the way this meshes together is that eventually things must collapse. He said, you know, he was right, and you know I'm right. We can't do this forever. This cycle can't run forever. And what's been put in place is a consolidation model that allows the government to oversee pushing smaller institutions inside of larger institutions, dissolving the debt and leaving the American people to pay the bills. Sad, isn't it? So, what could this all eventually lead to? Well, the way I see it playing out now that I have all of these things is the false recovery continues. All the fake money flows. The banks look more solvent than ever. The auditors are pushed and bullied around. And we don't get to see the underlying toxicity of the assets until they start to get close to fruition and they have to dump them. The biggest banks will have borrowed the most money, reinvested the most money, and will have a second bailout or a third bailout or a fifth bailout, however hell you want to say it at this point, from the taxpayers. We will have funded their solvency through the form of interest that we're paying out from the Federal Reserve, which will be harnessed through taxation. But eventually, that game can only go on so long, and the little fish start to get eaten up by the big fish. When this happens, small insurance companies, small hedge funds, small financial institutions, small banks, when I say small, I'm still talking multi-billion dollar organizations, start to implode like mushrooms all over the place. And the big companies are going, hey, we're good now. We, we, we did the right thing. You guys should have done the right thing too. See, we played along. We backed the legislation that allows this. We were prepared. You fought it, not us. Remember Golden Sachs, right? Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Citigroup endorsed this financial reform bill. They endorsed the Dodd bill. This is their payoff. They get to suck up everything that's valuable out of the small institutions and leave behind everything that's toxic. And that leads us to what the financial meltdown might look like. I've got show notes where you can go through these bullet points if you want to, but I think what happens is that as these big banks make nice with the feds and the little banks implode and get consumed, we start to see the real ravages of all the things that we as a people have allowed to happen in this nation over the years. First and foremost among them, this nation is a nation that no longer has skills. Now, there's a lot of really skilled people out there. A lot of you that listen to me, you have skills. I have skills. But as a people, as a people, the skill level of the average American compared to 50 years ago, is abysmal. My grandfather never graduated high school. He was the son of an immigrant from the Ukraine. He worked as a carpenter, and he worked as a coal miner. But you could give him a basic toolbox with a hammer and some wrenches and some screwdrivers and anything that broke in the house from something down in the basement to the carburetor on the boat motor or a car, he would figure out how to fix it. If there was a hole in a wall, he knew how to patch it. Even though he didn't have a high school diploma, he had the ability to do these things. If you said to him, I'm taking away everything you have except your land, he would say, fine, I know how to feed myself. 
he had those skills. And not because my grandfather was a great man, because he was an American during that time in our nation, when our nation had these skills. Right through the Great Depression, it is what saved us, that men took care of their own homes, and so did women. That when something broke, and they couldn't call somebody, they didn't have to. They made do, they got by. And it's the skills down to the home level skills, hunting skills, fishing skills, gardening skills, but higher level skills of production and manufacturing. Do you know how many machinists there were in the United States in the 1950s? People that knew how to take a machine and take metal or wood and fabricate things out of it. There's still a lot of us there, but there's nowhere near the number. That skill has value even when you don't have a job as a machinist because you know how to make things. You know how to look at things and interpret a need and create a tool to solve a problem. We had a hell of a lot more people that knew how to build cars, that knew how to build houses. Today, we don't have people that know how to build a house. We have people that know how to be a contractor and bring in a bunch of subcontractors, but they don't know actually how to do everything. Now, again, if you know how to build a house, don't be offended. I'm talking about the total quantity of people that fit that mold way, way down. Mostly what we have today, general contractors, that know how to handle paperwork, and the government bullshit and bureaucracy, and run a slide ruler and a frame square and a calculator so that they can make a profit. With them, we have a whole group of people we call subcontractors that know how to do one component of building a house, even a custom-built house. It's not built by a builder. It's built by this assembly line concept of subcontractors. So we have a bunch of illegal aliens who know how to put shingles on a roof. We have a bunch of illegal aliens who know how to put in drywall. We have a bunch of illegal aliens who know how to put pour concrete and make a foundation. But we don't have anybody that really understands everything that goes into that. We bring in an electrician to do the electrical. Is that wrong? It's not so much wrong in of itself, but what happened to the jack-of-all-trades? So the first thing that we start to see is the weakness in this nation from our skill set standpoint, where we start to have people that start to fail because they can't fix their own problems. We've already seen that. But as the economy goes into its second spin, it looks like a death spiral. And the difference is this time people will really freak out. Why? Because we've seen it before. We know how close we came to the abyss. Everybody will be waiting for it. And the people that made the mistake of being lullabied back to sleep will really freak out. And we'll see that skill delta really start to rear its head when people need to rely on themselves. That will lead to further panic, and that will lead to cries to the government to save us. That's why we need to beef up our skill sets, folks. Not just you, not just me, but as a nation. And sad to say, I don't think it's going to happen. The next thing that we'll see... And, and this will, these two are kind of like not one after the other. It's not chronological. These two are really going to play into each other. We're going to see the damage, the real damage, of the fact that Americans don't save money. All the money that's being held captive right now and not being spent, and the economy's not growing, and there's no inflation, and there's no money flow, it's not me and you holding on to our money. Well, maybe it is a little bit, because me and you are probably holding on to our money. The average American is not holding on to their money right now. They're in one of two camps. Right? The ostriches are in one of two camps. They've lost everything, and they're on government assistance of some sort, and they spend every penny that comes in, not because they want to, but because it's just enough to survive. So they can't save any money because they don't have any money to save. 
or one spouse has lost a job, can't find a new one, took one for less money, they're getting by. But there's no surplus anymore. So maybe they're borrowing a little less and they're getting a little less debt because less people will loan the money and they've come to a realization they can't afford any more debt. But they're not holding cash. The other side, there's this huge segment of America that's not participating in the recession. They're just not. In their heads anyway. They kept their jobs. Both mom and dad still have their job. They've been able to pay all their bills. They still have money coming in. The credit card companies love them because they pay their bills. The people that do housing loans and car loans and, and boat loans and RV loans and every other financing and furniture loans love them because they've made it this far. So their credit looks really, really solid. And they're able to borrow money cheaper than they've ever borrowed it before. They're continuing to spend their money and they're continuing to grow their debt and they look down on people who are down on their luck. They say, if those people were like me, if they were like me, they wouldn't be broke right now. I didn't buy the overpriced house. They're sitting in their overpriced house. They couldn't sell their house right now to save their life. But because they don't want to sell their house, it's not real to them. It's not a big deal. Their house, they don't look at their house as, uh, I owe $500,000. They look at their houses. I have a $3,200 or $3,800 house payment, whatever it turns out to be. And as long as they make the money to make the payment, as far as they're concerned, it doesn't affect them. And since it's uncomfortable to look at things that uh, are bad for you, like no one really wants to go get screened for cancer. People do it, but they really don't want to because there's this little piece of us that would just be like, man, I would prefer not to know. Well, since cancer can kill you, Debt's like cancer. It can kill you financially, but you're not really going to die. You're not going to lay in a bed and fall out, right? So because it's, it's an easier thing to not look at, we have this huge portion. I'd say 40 to 50% of America right now. They're grumbling about the economy. They're unhappy about the economy, but they basically blame everybody but themselves. They don't care that they're going deeper into debt, and they're continuing to spend. So... 80% or more of the American people are not, I would say 90% or more of the American people are not holding cash, either because they don't feel they need to, or because they don't have any to hold. And the other side of it is, the people with money that watch their 401k balance go so far down, as long as they didn't quit their contributions, they're feeling really good about it right now. Because they bought all through the crash and all through the false recovery. And all of a sudden that balance doesn't look so bad anymore and they feel better. And the one thing that actually hit them, the one thing that punched them in the gut and made them realize, hey, oh, this is bad, was looking at that 401k statement. And when it came back, even though it's not as high as it used to be, the fact that it's come way back up, they're starting to feel good. So there's your two camps. And that has led to no real savings, no cash reserves. People are behaving like the banks did through the 90s. The banks are behaving like our grandparents did right now. They're getting as much money as they can. They're converting it into long-term assets, and they're sitting on assets. They may be paper assets, but they're financially solvent paper assets. The Treasury note is a pretty solid asset right now. It may not be 10 years from now, but as a midterm play, Especially when you're trying to make your balance sheet look solid and you're a financial institution, good thing to be sitting on. So the banks are saving their money, and people are either blowing it 
or don't have it. So that savings delta, when this second crash comes, is going to become immediately evident. Because that guy that says, ah, it's all right, I kind of, yeah, I get the MasterCard, let's go shopping this weekend again. When the second crash happens and he ends up sitting next to the person that he's been looking down at and saying, I don't know what your problem is. There's plenty of work out there and I, I work hard. And you know what he's going to find out? The guy that lost his job, maybe he didn't do anything wrong at all. Maybe it was just his number was up. And when there was you know 10% unemployment and another 10% of hidden unemployment, if you were anywhere between, uh, if you were two out of any 10 people, it was your number. It's like getting drafted. He didn't do anything wrong to get drafted. Your number came up. And there are people out there that lost jobs. When you start to see unemployment go up at first, first one or two points of climb, the people that lose their job initially, unless it's a very forward-thinking firm that's leaning out because they see the crash coming, and some of that happened, but most of the people that go first are the bottom. They are the crappy workers. If I have 20 people working for me and I have to loan, lay off three, do you think I'm going to lay off my three best? Or do you think I'm going to lay off my three worst? And if my best cost more, and I've got 20 employees, do you think it's most likely that I would say, okay, three of my worst are my lower paid employees? That won't save me enough money. Am I still not likely, more likely to say, well, I'll bump it to four. I'll lay off four people, cut my own salary back a little bit, lean out some other costs, get the money that way, but I'd rather lay off four of my lowest performing employees than even one of my best. So when that thing first starts, yeah, and that's where the stigma comes from. But as the economy continues to roller coaster downhill, then good people just start losing their jobs left and right. Because when you're a company that employs 20,000 and you have to lay off 5,000, you don't get those luxuries. They have to come equally from all departments so the company can continue to function and at least make good on what it still has available to itself. So that is what you're going to see is that delta of savings and a lack of skills come together. And the other thing we need to understand is the debt hasn't gone away. The debt that the banks owe in the form of those toxic assets, the debts that we owe of people as people, and as, as things start to collapse, everybody starts scrambling for money, and the debt collectors put pressure on. And this implodes people. It implodes them into their own cancer bed that they've created for themselves. And you'll start to see as the other end of this thing comes back, and I, again, I don't know when that's going to happen. It could be in two years. It could be in five. It, this could be, I'm forecasting a relatively long cycle of three to five years. And then these other people, like Mike Gazer, like, like Gerald Salente, could be right. I could be wrong. It could be next year. I, I just don't see it that way. But when the other side comes, that's what happens. Debt implodes on people with no ability to take care of themselves any longer and no money to solve their problems. And everything begins to, to just crash to the ground. And then we get into the real problems. When there's no money free, the farms begin to fail. And when food fails, everything else fails around it. What I actually see, long term for this nation, is something that's worse than the Great Depression, but probably not as bad as something like the book Patriots Surviving the Coming Collapse, where the whole country breaks down, everybody sets everything on fire, uh, the world is over, and you better grab your AR-15 and head out to the woods. I don't see it going that far. Overall, our nation is a remarkably resilient group of people. I haven't lost faith in my fellow Americans, even though sometimes I may sound like I have. People that listen to this show and write me and tell me about what you're doing, you give me that faith. You've restored my faith. I started this show because I wanted to know 
if anybody was listening, if anybody still cared, and the answer that came back right from the beginning was a resounding yes, we care and we're going to do something. That spirit lives in who we are and what we are. And it's not just an American spirit, it's a human spirit. We have over 300 million people in this country, and despite the fact that many of them can't find their ass with their own two hands, we have a lot of really smart, really adaptable people. And it will hold the fabric of the nation together. It may not be the same nation on the other side of it. I hope if that happens that it gets stronger when we come out the other side if we look differently. But what we will see is this more of a slow spiral. That's another thing I've been saying from the beginning. Instead of the overnight, boom, it's crashed, it's over, you'll see one mushroom cloud after the other going off in the financial industry and the employment rate starting to climb. And it doesn't really matter at that point whether it's deflation or inflation that hits. Either way, what you end up with is it doesn't matter if things are cheap because nobody has any money anyway. And you start to see my biggest forecast for what's going to happen when we have this second crash, whenever it may be. I believe the suburbs are going to die. The suburbs are over. They are a, a failed experiment. And what you will see is that when people can't sell their houses, we've already seen it in, 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 in microcosm in neighborhoods throughout America in the first, the first big drop, where really nice neighborhoods turn into slums overnight. And eventually you get so many slums that nobody's even willing to live in them anymore. People that are even willing to live in a slum, you have a surplus, a slum surplus. And eventually there are people that will have money and will have insight and will have foresight. And they'll go in and they'll buy up areas in the suburbs and they'll turn them into more of an agriculturally based type of land, more of a uh, larger piece of land. They'll be able to go in and buy four houses and bulldoze three of them and then put real land with the house. That's how they'll revalue the suburbs because what will happen is as people are vacating the suburbs, there's only two places to go if you're in the suburbs and you're going to leave. You either go out in the country or you go to the city. And see, what everybody sees with the crash is people fleeing the city. That's not what happened in the Great Depression. Some people did, but a lot of people went to the city. The Great Depression is where a lot of our great farmers became auto workers and factory workers. They went into the cities. The cities became a more affordable way to live because you didn't need a car. Or you didn't need a car as much. So what I see is the suburbs being depleted as groups split into two factions, one moving into cities and the other one moving into rural land. And the cities actually expanding physically and eating some of the suburbs. So more urban living environments reaching out with a very slow development as this thing hits. And once it hits a bottom, the only place you can go from the bottom is back up. The country will rebuild. People will rebuild. It may not be under the United States dollar. God forbid it may not be as one nation. There may be some secession going on during this time. It can happen. Don't think it can't. That's the Soviet Union. Oh, wait, they're not around anymore as the Soviet Union. Now are they? So it can happen, even to a powerhouse. Even if something with, with incredible military might, the way the U.S. military does, it's trying to keep it together. It can still fall apart when there's no way to hold it together. So as those two factions split out, you start to see the suburban sprawl. 
not so much just go away, but the stuff that's real far out start to revert back to more of a rural environment, and the stuff that's closer in be swallowed into a more urban development, where we start to move toward a more future-looking society. And I don't mean future-looking uh, in, in, like, vision. I mean the way that when we start to see these science fiction movies, and they have these huge cities, and everybody lives close together, but yet, you know, it's some utopia. I ain't promising you the utopia. I'm, I'm promising you the model. And there's city planners all over America right now planning for this. There is a war on suburban living right now from the environmental groups who think there's a superior way to live, to stack people in buildings like cockroaches. But yet, we, when we look out at America, and we're, we're, we're told that we're not an environmentally sensitive nation, there's more wilderness in America than there is in any other nation in the world. We have a higher percentage of wilderness in America than the percentage of wilderness left in Africa. There's a tremendous amount of land out there. And as we do find better ways to feed ourselves, and as we do start to realize, the, and this is going into the, the second recovery, which might take a hundred years, I don't know. This is going way forward. This is pretending I'm a science fiction writer now a little bit for you. But we'll start to see people go out into these farms that are failing. And the guy has a thousand acres that he can't afford. He has to start selling it off. But instead of the close to the city farm being sold off and turned into suburbs, we'll see a new selling off of large farms, breaking them into four, five, ten acre tracks. The return of small agriculture. People fed up with having nothing, with having meaningless existences. So that the architects and the, and the mathematicians and the computer programmers move into the cities. And the people that work with their hands move out further into, into the rural environments. And we see a transformation that takes us forward and backward and blends technology and traditional skills at the same time. Doesn't sound all bad, does it? It's not. It's not all bad. But there's a lot of injury pain and misery in between a lot of it and i really believe that it's kind of like the cure that makes you worse before it makes you better the cancer that legitimately can be cured by chemotherapy where your hair falls out and you puke your guts out and you feel like you're going to die and you even feel like you want to die but eventually you make it through the other side i think there's times when we use chemotherapy where we shouldn't with cancer patients but there are times when it works this is the best analogy that I can draw for you. I mean, if we have the debt cancer, eventually we have to go through the chemo, right? And that's what the chemo is. The other thing I see a return to is the large family. I'm not so much talking about the husband and wife that have 12 children. What I'm talking about is the family unit that either live in a house together or have one piece of land together and they end up building or expanding the house or building multiple houses, kind of like little mini compounds where, you know, un the uncle lives across the way. And the whole family is close together again. Not because we so value it. We've, 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 in our minds, we've lost how valuable that really is. But because we're going to go into a situation where it's the only way we're going to be able to get by. If you think about it right now, if you wanted to move out in the country and start up a little farming operation, and uh, uh, even if you've saved your money, and if, even if you can sell your house, and uh, everything you scrape together, it might be all but physically and, and financially impossible. 
But if you have a brother who you trust and a cousin who you trust, and three families went in on something like that together, and a couple of them can kind of keep their city jobs through telecommuting, which is becoming more and more prominent and has been for the last 10 years, all of a sudden the feasibility gets better. So people maybe don't do it right now because it's not really what you want to do. We want it, we're independent people. And, and we believe that even relying on family takes away from our independence. But when people are faced with a choice of either take part in the implosion or get out, and the only way out is by consolidating and doubling up, people will take that second choice. It's going to be better to live someplace with a, with a, with a brother or a sister's family or, or parents moving with their kids than to live in a box. And there's going to be people that are going to be faced with that choice too, to live in a box. You'll see the homeless numbers rise. You may even see new make-work projects, uh, real make-work projects, like the Civilian Conservation Corps back during the FDR administration. Government won't go away. It won't give up. It'll probably be, through this period of time, more totalitarian than ever. More tyrannical than ever. You'll see more civil liberties taken away than you've ever seen before in your life in the name of security, in the name of saving the nation. You'll see the value of money. I don't care if it starts out with deflation. Sooner or later, there will be inflation like you've never seen before. Sooner or later, all those treasury bills the banks are holding are going to get cashed in. Sooner or later, as this false recovery kicks in, money's going to get freed up to play in the casino. Sooner or later, inflation will run away. And the only people that are going to get through that without being totally financially destroyed, are going to be holding on to some kind of a hard asset, whether it's paid for land or gold or silver or food. I don't know what works for you, but you better have some hard commodities. You're going to see manufacturing in this nation drop even further than it's ever dropped before. I believe you'll see the nation itself become less relevant in the world as we can no longer afford our globe-trotting military exploits and we begin to retract from a lot of the other places in the world. You're going to see China rise and become like the United States in the 1950s. Again, not like us politically, but like us economically with a huge, swelling, growing middle class. You're going to see envy of that. You may even see people immigrating from the United States. In fact, that's, that's highly probable uh, in the not-so-distant future, next 20 years. Overall, I think our nation has a real future, a bright future. But between there and now, there is a bridge of misery. And I can't tell you how to make the bridge of misery go away. But what I can tell you how to do is to be able to walk on it as comfortably as possible. And it all comes down to a foundational understanding of no matter what happens to the economy, no matter what happens politically, no matter what happens economically, you still control your own life more than anybody else. It's not about what you invest in so much as how you handle what you invest in. It's not so much about what you have as what you know and what your capabilities and abilities are right now. What you need to be doing right now is if you can find work, work your ass off and make as much money as you can and convert some portion of that to long-term assets. Pay off your debt. For God's sakes, pay off your debt. Stop using credit cards. Don't give me your bullshit about airline miles or discounts or any of this other crap. Get rid of the damn things. They're a cancer in your life. And one day, one day when this shit starts to unravel, you're going to feel like you need it and you'll go into the trap. 
Sooner or later it will happen. Have food in your home. Six months worth is not too much. I don't care if you take two years to get there. I think you have it. That's just buying 10% more than you need for the next two years. Spend a little bit less time screwing off and wasting your money and a little bit more time investing in yourself. Take time to learn about your family history and who you are and where you came from. Not just because it's interesting. Because it will give you faith in yourself. You'll understand your lineage and where you come from. And if you shut up and if you're quiet in the middle of that research, you'll hear what the Indians would tell you would be your ancestors speaking to you across the generations. Telling you the wisdom that you've chosen to forget. Value what's real. Value family. Value real things that sustain you. And you'll find your own answers. Don't wait for tomorrow. Act today. We are running out of time when it really comes down to it. There's a limit to how long we can defer misery. And that's what I want to end up with today. And I want you to understand that a false recovery or not, the actions of the government, the actions of the financial institutions, all of these things, supposed new taxes, supposed spending cuts, all the things that they're doing are not about fixing anything. They're trying to do two things. One, defer misery, and two, as the crash comes, bring the plane down in a controlled manner, and versus 90 degrees straight into the ground, it explodes and everything disappears into a flash. They're trying to bring it down under control. People said that during the bailouts. That process hasn't ended yet. The plane's still in the air. It hasn't crashed yet. I know the economy crashed, at least it feels like it did, but it's still going. As this thing spirals down, they're trying to control the descent. And what they're trying to do, because they're politicians, and the people in the banking system are also, they're not elected, but they're politicians. They're masters of the spin. They're trying to defer the misery long enough so they can keep raping the system to get as much as they can out of it. And I'm telling you, on some levels, that's what you have to do, too. While the system's functioning, you have to be smart with your actions and your deeds and your money. You have to protect yourself. You have to think ten years right now. The banks are. That should tell you something. There's a plan in place. I connected the dots for you today. There's a plan being executed on Capitol Hill right now to set up the ability of big banks to swallow little banks under federal regulation, exempting the largest and most guilty players from it with loopholes. Remember what we learned yesterday from the Huffington Post. Right? Freddie Mae, Freddie Mac, exempted from financial reform. Great. City, exempted. Sachs, exempted. Who isn't exempted? Your local bank, not exempt. At the same time, a scam set up where the banks borrow money for a three-quarter rate and give it back to the people they borrowed it from and get 4% on a long play versus a short play. They're playing long. You should play long, too. They're not playing long with a lot of risk, though, are they? They're not leveraging into these construction loans like they used to. Small business loans. Those were the old long plays, the five, seven, ten-year business loans, construction loans, production loans. Right? They paid much better interest. They could make 9% or more on those loans. 
Now they're happy to get three in a safe play. They're being conservative. All I'm suggesting is they know what's going on because they're controlling the money. So if we pay attention to what they're doing, we can make the same type of play, not the exact same play, the same type of play that they can. We can realize that our money is better used to buy something in full rather than leveraged to figure out how long can I possibly, you know, how short a time can I pay for these assets and make them mine, where I hold them and I own them and they can never be taken away from me. And then how long can that asset sustain me? See, that's what they're doing. They're not just buying the 10-year or 20-year treasury so that in 10 years they can cash it in. It becomes an asset for them in their paper world. It becomes sustenance. For 10 years, it's a hard asset. When the, if there's a recovery and a boom comes, they can loan against it and make even more money. If a recovery doesn't come, they can turn and cash in, pull their money out before the final catastrophe, convert it to something else, and jump ship. They've set themselves up that way. I'm just suggesting you do the same thing. And with that, I am going to wrap up today. I know this was a little bit of a long show. I brought some interesting things in. I hope I didn't scare you today. I don't want to scare you. I want to empower you. There's a bright future for this nation after we deal with the mess that's been made. It's going to be painful and it's going to be hard, but you don't have to go all the way down to the bottom with it. It will affect you. There's nothing you can do to completely avoid the future that will bring some misery to the people of the United States of America. But you can come out the other side stronger. If you're smart today, the worst catastrophes will become opportunities for you. Think, be prepared, and be ready. And remember, if I'm completely wrong, if we go into sustained recovery, if somehow these guys pull this out and a recovery lasts for 20 years, living that way will make you better off anyway. There is an opportunity, whether we go up or down, as long as you pay attention to what real value is all about. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.